Hey there. If you've been enjoying the Unchained Binge podcast, you should know that this podcast, like everything else we do here at the Escape Collective, is member-funded. That means we're funded by, well, you, if you're already a member. And if you're not, we hope you'll think about becoming one. You can head on over to escapecollective.com join to sign up and become part of a pretty awesome community. It's a community that supports this podcast and the others on the Escape Collective podcast network, as well as everything that we write about bikes and more over on the escapecollective.com website. It's also a community with a very active Discord channel where we sometimes do live recordings of podcasts, by the way. In other words, there are lots of reasons to sign up. Our monthly memberships start at $11.99 USD, or you can save 30% by signing up annually. We'd love to have you as a member. And again, you can head over to escapecollective.com join to find out more and sign up. This is the Unchained Binge Podcast. I'm Kaylee Fretz, and we are going to go deep on Netflix's new Tour de France docuseries, Unchained. Today is the last episode, episode eight, Road to Paris. In today's episode, we get a bit of the back of the race, the fight for time cut, the big sprinters, an emotional moment, plus the final fight for the yellow jersey, and the sprinters world championships on the Champs-Élysées. Let's get into it. The French name of this episode was actually On the Road to Paris, which is only two additional words, but I think sounds significantly better than just Road to Paris. Also true. Yeah. What well, was so... This is the last one. This is this is the last episode. We kind of have promised a number of different times over the over the course of the last seven episodes that we would we would talk about this in in more broad terms. Now, before I do that, I should welcome you all, Johnny Long. Welcome back to the final episode. We're almost done. Almost done. St- still reclined, but in a different direction this time. I appreciate you gotta that. Su- you got to switch it up. You got to switch it up. Kit Nicholson. Hello, I'm enjoying. Yeah, Johnny looks even more relaxed than he has. He's only using one finger to hold up his microphone. <laughs> I went. I went through a a, um, a time on the podcast where I was just getting very cross. So I'm I'm chilling out for the summer. Good, nice. Let's say fair. That's good. That's good. And Abby Mickey. We can see like just like Johnny's in the corner of his screen, and then there's just like white wall. <laughs> like barely actually see. Johnny Long. Johnny is just a head. He's just a floating mm. head. Yep, he's a floating he's head. He's a talking head. Well, us four talking heads, we have one more opportunity to dissect the Tour de France Netflix series. Uh, like I said, we, we, we kind of promised that we would talk kind of big picture, I think, in this episode. I do want to do that, of course, but I think we do need to like talk about the episode itself first, right? So let's get into... Let's get into episode eight first and foremost. Like I said in a little intro, we got sort of the, the, the well, we got the culmination of a lot of different things. We got the culmination of, of the yellow jersey. We got this sort of final sprint duel. But we also got this kind of really nice uh, emotional look at 
Fabio Jakobsen, who we were obviously introduced to earlier in the series, and his battle to get across the mountains and get himself to Paris. And this is this is a story that, yeah, anybody who has watched the Tour de France is probably sort of vaguely aware of. You always see the Gruppetto come in, the Gruppetto being the last group on the road, or the big group of sort of like non-climbers that comes in. You see them come in, you know, half hour after the, the leaders. But there is very much a race happening back there. It's just a very different race. And I, for one, was I was really pleased that they included this in this episode because it's it's we haven't gotten a lot of we haven't gotten a lot of just like single man against himself emotion out of this show. We've had a lot of like one rider against another rider that's sort of tension and conflict. This was just sort of like a very pure emotional moment that I I kind of loved and was actually one of my favorite moments of all eight episodes. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. Um, I think it was also the most dramatic. Um, they spent most time over it. It was, you know, you saw the clock counting down and several minutes passed between 44 seconds and the moment he crossed the line. Um, but uh, yeah, it was that, you know, cycling is a game of risk. We all know that. It's this chess game. It's tactical. It's um, But it's also this massive athletic undertaking undertaking and um it's yeah digging deep is a real part of the sport and there's a real risk to those guys who've got to make it to the Champs-Élysées to sprint and it's a storyline that you might understand if non-cyclists as we understand the editors are might not get or might not think is important but the fact that it's included at the opposite end of an episode which deals so closely with the guys at the other end of the race who are winning this the same stage it's um yeah it, it was the most um yeah like i said the most dramatic moment of the whole series i think but also the most emotionally punchy it was and you might cynically say it's emotionally manipulative with all the slow mo and the 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 shouting through the radio um and then florian senechal's brilliant interview at the bus um, in tears which i think they could have they could have dialed that up even more if they'd actually explained what he was talking about so i think they kind of slid yeah. past it that, that he was the first person to be at Jakobsen's side after the Tour of Poland crash. And that um, in the aftermath of that, you know, Jakobsen even used the words, Florian, save my life, because um, he was the first guy there. Um, so, yeah, it, it was it was incredibly dramatic. It could have been even more dramatic, but I think they did it really well. It's also interesting in that cycling is very much always a race against time. I mean, you see like in the episode previously, it's, you know, Garrett Thomas racing against a biological clock and the race for the yellow jersey is a race against your rivals, but it's also a race for time. So in a way, this was kind of like it boils cycling down to its most basic racing against the clock. And I think it was... It was just amazing to see. And I remember the day that this was happening in real time was just as dramatic as what we saw in the show, actually, because it, there were minutes that went by after the stage had concluded, after the general classification riders had said their bit. And there was still much, a lot of time to wait until he crossed the line. And it was very dramatic up to the lead out. Everybody was counting down. Oh, will he make it? Will he not make it? And so I feel like it was one of the rare times where the drama that they managed to show on screen was, was real in real time. Yeah. And he actually did make it by 16 seconds. Right. So that, that was, that was fully accurate. And, uh, 
ah, it's just it was it was heart wrenching to watch. It was beautiful to watch, uh, and it did like from a narrative perspective, it kind of sets up that final duel on the Champs Elysees really well as well because it gives you an idea of what these sprinters go through just to get there, right? Like just to get to this final stage. We hear so often, you know, often the the the, the next or the, the the previous sprint stage, the, the previous opportunity for these riders could be as much as a week ahead of time. So they ride through these massive mountains. They do these insane days. They fight, 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 just to make it to this one final stage. And I think it does. It kind of it, it impressed upon the audience how important that day is for that type of rider. Which then, yeah, which then sets up the the sort of victory or defeat uh, on the Champs in a really nice way. So the rest of the episode is, well, I shouldn't say the rest of it. The next bit of the episode is focused on sort of the, the final battle for the yellow jersey over those last those last few stages and whether Tadej Pogacar can claw back some of the time that he lost to Vingago on the Grenoble and whether... Yumbo Visma can, is sort of up for the challenge and, and up for rebuffing those efforts. And, and you see some of the stress in that team. Uh, and we also get the Wout redemption arc. You know, we, we said in, what was it, episode six, right? That in my major complaint, I think as a, as a group, our major complaint was that it kind of sets Wout up as this as this slightly villainous figure without sort of closing the the door on the other side of that, like without correcting the record basically, which is what they do on on uh with stage five earlier in the show. They kind of like paint him in in this particular light and then they, they kind of fix it by the end of the episode. They didn't do that in episode six. They basically they it looks like they sort of waited to fix it for this final episode, right? And we do get we get a, a really clear picture of the fact that this is a a team sport, and the fact that both of these riders have have done their part, uh, and then we get the bit where, and and we talked about this in real time. I remember sort of reporting on the race from last year, talking about did like we weren't sure did Jonas Vingo just hand that to Wout We were pretty sure that he did. It looked like he did. He definitely didn't cross the line, sort of going full of gas. And we got confirmation in the show that that was a a predetermined plan. That if it was close, he wanted to know, and it was close. And they let him know, and he definitely sat up in the finale. I mean, Jonas Vingigo did, and handed that stage win to Wout van Aert. And then we saw what that meant to Wout van Aert. So I feel like we they kind of close that, they close that storyline, and they tie a bow on it quite nicely in this episode. Yeah, what I really liked about that was the, I mean, we saw the, uh, van Aert and Vingigo on the bus say good luck, mate, have fun, um, and then get uh, you know get going on the TT, but. And I think we we knew, yeah, like you say, we knew that um, uh, at least on the road, Vingigo um, decided this is for Wout. But the idea that he and Grisha Nierman sat down and were like, okay, so you've got to tell me, Grisha, if it's close and I want to give it to Wout. So you've got to tell me to sit up. And that was, so that was a kind of, you know, it, it was, it flew in the face a little bit of the little boy thing. It's made him sound a bit more in control of things. Um, but yeah, that, um, that, real selflessness um, was a really interesting dynamic on Vingegaard, but it was also really nice to see. And it was amazing at the time to see Van Aert um, just break down. And he's won loads before. It's not like this was his first win, but it was just the fact that it was, what it meant to him and to the team and clearly to Vingegaard as well. And it was the culmination of, uh, well, 20 stages. 
I think they gave themselves away a little bit, though, because they mentioned in the episode that Wout had done everything he could to help Jonas win the race. And so I think that they kind of alluded to a little bit of forced drama that had happened in episodes before. Um, But I also loved seeing Wout this way. Like, he's never emotional in interviews. He's very, very stoic, very, like, monotone almost. And seeing him cry after Jonas sat up and when he realized what was happening was pretty amazing because he's just not that guy as far as we know. But you saw like a whole new side of him in this episode. Maybe it's just because he loves winning three stages so much. Like he won three stages in 2021. And then he probably thought that his chance was maybe gone in 2022. And he's got to win three different ways as well. So he's got to, you know... Like a little solo breakaway, sprint, and then a time trial. So, He's got to keep it mm-hmm. running. He's got yeah, to keep gotta... it running. You know what that moment put in context for me was this spring, Wout van Aert gifted a relatively large one-day race in Gent-Wevelgem to his teammate, Christophe Laporte. Like, fully gifted it to him. And there was a fair amount of sort of chatter around that. Like, one of the greatest cyclists of all time, Eddie Merckx, came out and said, like, ah, you can't do that, you, you know. Wout will regret it, but the watching Wout van Aert's reaction to having a stage gifted to him, because he was pretty sure at the time that that is what, what, what had happened as well, puts the Laporte gift, again, into perspective. Like, you can now see why he would want to do the same thing for a teammate after having it done for him and sort of knowing what that feels like and, and how special that can be. And it... it yeah, it just makes it even less surprising, I guess, that that he would do that for Christophe Laporte this year. And it provides kind of another dimension to his personality. Like, we don't get a lot of that, like you guys were saying, that there's there's no, we don't get a lot of, like, emotional Wout van Aert. It's not something that we see all that often, and that's the first time we've really seen it in this entire series, and one of the first times I've ever seen it, period. It's like uh, it's like trickle down economics, but it actually works. And I think if you're if you're running a team with like a bunch of big stars, like you see it in American sports, where like you have a superstar who takes a bit less money or whatever to then mean that the like the salary cap can fit in the other stars. And I guess the comparison in cycling is that only one guy can win each bike race. So then, if you're gonna have a team with all these hugely talented riders, then to some extent you need to share the glory around a bit and make sure everyone on their various tra- like career trajectories can pick up the, the wins that they want for their Palmares. Um, so I guess that's a thing that's been, it's hard to tell how, if this comes from the riders or if it's something that the, the team themselves try and instill. I don't know. I think that'd be an interesting thing to ask them about. Well, we've seen it before with, um, and you know, before last year's tour at the Dauphiné when Roglic won and Vingigo, um and he crossed the line um, on the Queen stage together. Um, and that felt at the time like, because Vingigo had come second the year before, although Roglic had come second the year before that, Vingigo <laughs> felt like the, the heir to the um, mm. Tour de France throne. So it felt at the time like Roglic was being bought in a way that sounds that sounds really cynical because he's a great obviously a great champion rider as well but that was like you say that was a, a, a it was a sharing of the wealth and a sort of okay i scratch your back you scratch mine and we'll get this done together but what this also brings into relief with the episode is the fact that they completely missed out laporte 
And it's not just because mm. of the Jumbo Visma dynamic and the fact that Laporte and Van Aert are close. Um, but the only time we saw Van, uh, Laporte in this episode was when he was sitting on the bed waiting for a massage or having <laughs> just had a massage. Um, and when he fist bumps about Van Aert. But he won a stage the following day. And he was the first Frenchman, the only Frenchman of the whole race to win, to win a Tour de France stage. Which just made me think, wait, what? This is the Tour de France au cœur du peloton. Um <laughs> series good accent it's it's <laughs> got an a-level in french that's about all i can do is the accent um but yeah it's um i just thought we've been talking about how this is for a french audience for the whole seven and a half episodes and then they miss out the biggest french maybe one of the biggest french stories of the race I, th- I yeah i mean i think that they they just had to make decisions around characters right and if it didn't fit the characters that they'd already introduced at this point then it wasn't going to show up because we also got zero sepkus and sepkus was was absolutely crucial to to Jonas van go winning the tour de france like he was the final domestique more often than not and we got like literally zero of him i mean there's there's more of uh like EF's press officer and friend of the podcast, Matt Bowden, than there is of Sepp Kuss in the actual bike race. Like, there's, there's, that's a ridiculous, ridiculous thing. And we can kind of get into this when we talk big picture, but like, for an American audience, a miss, right? Like, one of the biggest American riders in, in the whole race. And, uh, yeah, let, let's, well, let's not go down that rabbit hole just yet. I want to, I want to hold off on, on the, some of the weird big picture decisions that, that were made around this, but, well, if, if we're talking about things that were missed this episode, the handshake between Pagacha and Vingago when Pagacha fell off his bike, and then Vingago waited for him, and they 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 shook hands, and that was a, that was a huge moment, and it also ties into the the story, I guess. For the, that was like one of the huge GC things that happened in those final days. It was also like one of the most controversial moments. In the cycling bubble at the time, like Kayla, you mentioned, wow, gifting a win to Laporte this spring. But the the handshake was, I mean, a hotly debated topic among cycling fans. It was a hotly debated uh, topic in this virtual room as well. <laughs> as is often the case, Abby and I not seeing Abby and I not seeing eye to eye on, on, Never. on certain things. <laughs> no, it was like did they even show the crash? They showed Vingegaard's almost They showed crash. him slide, but they didn't show Pogacar do anything. Yeah, but they didn't show the actual fall down and, and and these dramatic moments that were actually, you know, the actual dramatic moments in those final stages. But it's, it's like, weird, weird decisions. Yeah, it's like you say, they have to make these decisions, difficult decisions. But if you think about how much they crammed into that 45-minute episode, they there was a lot that happened in those four days of the bike race. Um, having covered it, um, and you know, we they they managed to get three teams in, and flashbacks to 2020 and to the Tour of Poland crash again. Um, but yeah, the, so it's quite remarkable that they managed to squeeze in what they did. So, it's, it, but it's a shame that there are some things that were so, I don't know, almost definitive about that tour that will that we'll all remember, but that didn't make it in. But then again, I suppose it's not necessarily a highlights reel of the tour, is it? It's a, it's picking out some yeah. stories to tell. But it would also be counter to their attempted narrative that Pog is some kind of greater than everyone else villain if they had him like yeah. 
Great point. Know. That Sitting is a very up, good yeah, point. Yeah, it wouldn't. It would be Tom Bombadil all over again. <laughs> well, then yeah, Darth, you Darth Vader doesn't like slip and fall in, on the slippery floor of the Death Star. Like that would just be awkward, right? You also have the villain Wout Van Aert in the green jersey dropping Tade Pagacha, the like off-screen villain, which is still every time I see that, I'm just like, that is. That was such a crazy moment, which is like, I'm glad they put it in there because um, I think it was a huge moment in the race. But it was, I don't know, maybe they need more, needed more. I don't know what more you do there, but it was. I think it reminds you that it's not that it didn't all come down to that one stage, the Granon, like mm. that. That stage to Hortecam was almost more impressive because of who was doing the work and because it was the final breaking and it was showing that they weren't just, you know, they hadn't just caught him out because of tactics. They were actually catching him out by brute strength from Wout Van Aert and then from Vingigo. And I think that's quite an important element because we, we refer back to stage 11 all the time, but it wasn't just that day. I also think that they, they kind of had to include that Wout Van Aert pull because it justifies Vingigo gifting the stage later to to wow right like without that you get this weird like okay what well, he went from the villain to getting gifted a stage what what how, when did that happen you needed this sort of you needed the the redemptive arc to actually have some redemption in it first and so i feel like they kind of had to include that bit from a from a narrative perspective or else or else, like uh, you know, you wouldn't buy it, right? Like, you'd be like, ah, I didn't actually gift it. Like you just wouldn't buy that that finale, even though it actually happened. <laughs> what or actually happened, it. as we're as we are as we are cre- increasingly clear on, is is only vaguely relevant to the way that things actually sort of play out in, in the show. We did get we got we got one line out of Pogaccia this time. We got uh, oh, one word like, out of Pogaccia this time. A word, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, which is more than we've gotten most. I, I mean, just to be clear, like just because they weren't following UAE around, just because they weren't on the bus, doesn't mean that they can't use all of the footage and all of the, you know, hundreds of hours of Pogacar talking to cameras over the course of the Tour de France. But they clearly decided that it was better to have him be mostly silent uh, and just sort of this this figure off to the side uh, with with you know dramatic music underneath him. But you know, Abby, he did. You're saying he he did. We got a bit of him this time. Yeah, there was like a moment um, in between the two climbing stages where they were like, do you think you can still win it? And he was like, yes. And that was just the whole clip of him, um, which I just found hilarious. <laughs> is that is that intended to be foreshadowing for season two? <laughs> Possibly. I mean, he's coming at this race with a vengeance, although he is coming with a very different buildup than then uh Jonas with uh he he was injured so he's not racing the two I don't want to get into the weeds people won't understand well, well also what's missed and but is kind of succinctly summarized in that yes is that Pagacha animated that whole th- third week where a lot of other sort of second place rivals would have effectively like laid down and died and like all waited for like one perfect moment to try and wrestle back the tour but it's never really going to work but he spent that whole week attacking on the flat on the downhill up mountains it was it was great and he also deserved well he got a lot of credit for that because after two straight tour wins everyone like the audience and the media and everyone starts to get a bit bored of that sort of dominance um so 
the sort of storyline that was missed because we didn't see the tour from his point of view. Whereas it was a real tour of that he may not have won in terms of like the yellow jersey, but he won a lot of fans and I think respect for how he dealt with, you know, the defeat. Yeah, I think losing the Tour de France was probably the best thing that could possibly happen to Pogaccio from a, from a PR perspective and a, and a fan perspective. And it's also why, I think I mentioned this in the fir- very first episode, I think it's just an absolute massive miss from UAE and their PR communications team saying no to this. Like like I said, if if, if I was Pogaccio, I would be pissed because this is your opportunity to step beyond a, a narrower audience and potentially if you're him, take your earnings and, and, and what 10 X them. If you can, if you can fully step outside cycling, right. Uh, granted that's, that's not guaranteed. There's never going to be any guarantee of that, but you at least have the opportunity if this, if this thing did take off in a, in a crazy way. Well, well, especially when he's like twice the character and personality that a lot of the other guys are like he, despite that is just like captivating and, like actually makes jokes and doesn't take himself too seriously. And I think it was especially in this episode at the end, I've, I've, I felt that like we were really missing having, having the view from inside their bus and the story told from their point of view, because imagine if it had been told, if you could have flitted between the Yumbo bus, the UAE bus, the whole way in between those two characters. Yep. I mean, it would have been cool, but I also think that he is such a personality that would have monopolized the entire show. And much (laughs) like the tour was the Pog show, like this would have been like all about him, whether they wanted it to be or not. And without him as a character in the show, it highlighted more of Jonas as a person and as a general classification contender where like we've never really even as fans, as journalists, we've we've never really delved into who he is. So for fans of the sport, for newcomers, it, it introduced them to a character that no one really knows anything about. Whereas like with Pog, like you can go and you can find animated interviews with him all over the internet. And I'm sure like if he'd even gotten 10 minutes of this show, he would have been the star. And so in that way, I think it was actually a blessing that he wasn't part of it because it would have completely written over a lot of the other storylines that we got. It would have... Mm like really taken away from the other teams that we got to see if we had just the UAE versus Yambo Visma. And I think like, yeah, I wish I could see those two teams trying to figure out how to beat each other, but it also would have made for a little less dynamic of a story. That's a really interesting take. I, I, yeah, I think I would agree with it. Um, I, st- I still want to see it. I still de- like desperately want to see that, but I think you're probably right that Vingigo would have seemed very robotic in in a relative sense, and it would have been really hard to to overcome that. Well, let's take a short break. So the final storyline in this final episode was all around the Champs-Élysées, the final stage of the race, the final sprint of the race, the, the, the reason why all the sprinters keep riding, the reason why Fabio Jakobsen 
you know, suffered up all those mountains. Uh, and we get this, this, well, we get basically Jasper Philipson, Jasper disaster Philipson versus Fabio Jakobsen. And those two are kind of portrayed as, as the, as the primary protagonists. We completely ignore Dylan Grunewagen, uh, and, and a couple others, <laughs> uh, despite the fact that his, like, you see the sort of final moments of that lead out and you're like, uh, that's, that's Grunewagen's lead out. That's about to kind of take this thing over. Anyway, your thoughts on, on the way that this, this finale kind of was portrayed. I, I, one of the biggest ones for me was Christoph Rudhoff, the, the, one of the brother GMs of, of Alpsen de Kunik appears to be slightly insane. Yeah. To me. <laughs> Bit of a control freak. And then, I mean, yeah. it, we, after what we saw in the last episode with him being, you know, all kind of the slightly annoyed uncle at the end of the Christmas table, be, just telling Jasper off over and over again. Um, yeah, just changing. It's like, oh, I've got an idea. And we're going to go for it because it came into my head. So it's right. We're going to change everything that we knew about the Jasper sprint and put somebody else in front of him for the last stage. Which then didn't work. Well, like, the, the, well, the, the whole, the whole, like, it needs to play out. Like I've seen it in my head yeah. is like weird mm. Jesus stuff. Like, what is he the prophet? Like, what, <laughs> what is this? It was a very strange. You know what it reminded me of was was and Johnny, you'll you'll maybe you'll have a good example of this. It it kind of gave me like some of these larger than life character uh, football manager vibes. Were they like? Gave me like Pep Guardiola or, or something like those, like where they just like have a vision of the way things are supposed to go and the, the, the players are supposed to execute on that. That's the kind of mm. the feeling I was get, getting from that particular quote. Nathan Shelley. Yeah. Yeah. Or we could go that direction. We could go with the fake version. <laughs> and oh, then Nathan no. Shelley. Is this? Um... That's Ted Lasso. That's Ted Ugh. Lasso. Yeah. Don't talk to me about that. Um, I, for me, it, it gave like sort of Silicon Valley CEO vibes. Like a sort of uh, WeWork, yeah. like... Matches with the hair as well. You know, like when the WeWork guy was saying, like, we're going to have WeWork babies and WeWork hospitals and WeWork and it's just all going to come out of my brain. But then it's also how he just introduces Edward. It's like, oh, yeah, Edward's going to do it. It's like, who, and then I presume they cut to... Is it Edward Plankett? So they cut, like, I've never seen Edward Plankett without uh, sunglasses and a helmet on, but presumably they, they cut to Edward Plankett, who's suddenly, like, deer in the headlights, like, me? Are you sure? <laughs> And it was just, it, it's great. Like they had time. and But the other thing that struck me was that when they're trying to like get a bit of drama for the TV or whatever, that this was like the most dramatic, one of the more dramatic like bus disagreement moments of the whole race or series. Or maybe it just fit in with the sprint thing and they did an extra sprint thing to put in. But it's like, if the biggest like drama is that Edward Plankett is going to lead Jasper Philipson out, then everything goes way more smoothly than I, I thought it did. Yeah, it was very, it was just very strange, and it seemed like a bit of a interlude that was just quite confusing and a little bit deranged. Um, and yeah, when when the commentator says, "Oh, and Philipson is freelancing in the bunch," you're like, "Mate, I mean, obviously he we won the stage, but still." <laughs> it's giving like a DS that's never raced his bike before in his life. <laughs> So that brings us to the quick step car and the argument they had in there. Tom Steele's just getting really annoyed with the guy. I don't know what, I don't know who it was in the driving seat, but the other coach or DS. Um, he's like, I'm not telling them what to do. It's like, that's your job, mate. But it just seemed so odd and misplaced. And it was just kind of slightly jarring um, after what 
usually seems like good organization or at least agreement. Yeah, were, were they specifically talking about about whether to chase that late break? That's what they were trying to decide is whether to tell the guys to chase the late break. I think or it not. seemed seemed like they were trying to work out why other other teams weren't helping them and how much work to do because the other teams weren't helping them. Um, and uh, yeah, like they wanted to ask them to slow down a little bit to to draw other teams forward. Um, but that's what Tom Stills wasn't going to tell the team because they're the ones riding their bikes. They can decide how hard to go. I was curious if that moment was actually like from a completely different stage. Yeah. Because <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. I don't remember there being a 10 rider break off the front in the final stage last year, but maybe I just, it's slipping my mind because, you know, it was a long So race. breakaways on the Champs-Élysées are only ever about 10 seconds up the road. It's not difficult. Yeah, and they're always just fake. Well, that's the thing is like they happen every year and we don't even bother to like look and see who's in them because they're not going to make it. <laughs> so it's like it's entirely possible that that break existed and I just never even clocked it because it, it's like an irrelevant, the irrelevant piece of the bike race basically for the for the actual finale. But I mean, clearly, the, if if that is accurately portrayed from a from a chronology perspective, then, you know, at, le- at the very least, the quick step car was was concerned about it. Uh, what about that? Moto shot. I think this is oh, one of the greatest so good. bits yeah. of video, video videography and in, in cinematography and in, yeah. in, in cycling. And we get it every year, to be clear. Like this isn't a Netflix thing, but it is one of the greatest shots in, in pro cycling. So good. Absolutely. So good. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. There's nothing more to say about that really. It's just amazing. It's, just it's a great amazing. shot. It makes me wonder though about the sanity of the guy driving the motorcycle on those cobbles up the uh Is it not I it? thought I think they have like, is it not a tracked like a on rails? Thing. No, it's like um, a guy on rails. I think I well, I think this is it. I think it's like a rail setup, and then it's a guy uh, like holding like a, it's not a turret gun. Like it's not a rail gun, but it's like a, you hold it like that, and it's like a seat you sit on, and it just like zooms alongside, right? Last year it was a moto. I remember seeing. Oh, was it? it? They had, they like they built a little like mini road down the middle, and the, and there was a, a moto and a cameraman on the back Whoa. of the moto. And they were just like, he, he was just going yeah. up and down. I thought I'd seen that on the, on the overhead. Yep. Oh, wow. Yep. That is Either more way. impressive. But you're right that it was a, it was a, like something on a track for, for a Which while. Which makes a lot more um, sense. Yeah, like the, the sort of the famous, I think it was 2011 Shops shot where Mark Cavendish wins. Uh, and it's Renshaw and then Cav. And mm. those two finish one too because the lead, it's basically like the one of the most perfect lead outs in the history of pro cycling. And that shot was, I think maybe the, maybe the first year they, they used that tracking thing, uh, the tracking cam. And, and yeah, it was just, it was like shockingly good. Like it, it, it stood out in sort of the rest of the production. And, uh, I actually think that the original, that original version, which is slightly wider, was better than the one that ended up in this Netflix show, but it was still like, what a way to cap this episode and kind of show, just viscerally show the speed of of those finales which is you know they're going slightly uphill and it's still 60 70k an hour it it shows that what we gain in cycling covering such distances and terrain and the views we get from that it shows what we then lose and not having it in like a stadium where you can way more tightly control the types of shots you can get that you get in other sports that sort of really build it up where whereas in cycling you have to rely a lot more just on the the landscape and the way you're racing through rather than being able to like manufacture how it all looks agreed 
the music and the final montage was just absolutely perfect. And I kind of wish there was more of that vibe like sprinkled throughout the series because I think there is like the Tour de France is so visually just amazing that we we could have had more than that just like in certain episodes and like the montages are always great like on tv broadcast you always have a montage at the end of stages or races and i don't know that left me wanting more but maybe it's better to be left wanting more than being like another montage yeah, i think it's better that than to have repeated themes and i think coming to the end of the series um and this episode it was very i don't know there were there were some sci-fi elements to it i think at least in the music, the portrayal of the um, characters too. The first time I really noticed it was when was in the time trial bit earlier on with Jumbo Visma, um, Jonas Vingegaard and Teddy Pogacar being involved too. And you've got the TT helmets, you've got slow-mo, you've got this kind of throbbing cinematic soundtrack. And that made me think of, I don't know, some kind of Star Trek or even interstellar sort of soundtrack. Mm. Um, and, uh, and then, yeah, this... This finale um, was very big in its musicality and uh, its kind of spectacle. Um, but I think it what's interesting, and I looked up looked this up last night, and it may not have been filled in all the information, but it's got one composer for the whole eight episodes, um, which makes what they did more impressive. I think if that's the case, because I think every episode had its own musical identity. Um, and it's not so different that it couldn't be the same composer and a good composer obviously can do lots of things but I think that adds to the um, the different storylines in each of the episodes obviously um, we know that music does that um, but I felt like it was particularly uh, particularly powerful in this episode you know Jakobsen's moody piano and then in building into the finale that seems like a good segue into talking about this, the show more more broadly yeah and well okay we're at the end of eight episodes we've we've we the the four of us and and occasionally ian uh have have talked about this for eight hours now <laughs> and watched it roughly eight hours although some of them were 45 minutes whatever close enough what what do we think like i guess there's a couple different things there there's did you enjoy it and then there's do you think it was effective and do you think it did its job? So let's start with the first sort of your personal opinion after just watching this, watching some of the episodes more than once. I mean, I watched, I think most episodes at least twice and yeah. Yeah. I, I enjoyed it as a whole. I, I thought it was good. It was better than I was expecting it to be probably. Um, but it, in other ways it was kind of annoying in ways I did expect it to be because like as we've said in many episodes you know they have to pick a good storyline and sometimes you over egg the pudding but um yeah as a whole i think it's i think it's a, it's definitely entertaining and had, had i not been watching it for um you know to, to talk about it i would have watched it probably a couple of times and really enjoyed it um and yeah I, as as for its effectiveness um, obviously, that remains to be seen, but I, I, I'm, I will reserve judgment until I've spoken to more people who haven't followed the sport or didn't follow last year's Tour de France to actually understand whether it can be effective. Because I'm a little bit dubious as to whether it's actually possible to follow what's happening. Yeah, before I started watching, I think I underestimated how much it had to be 
more than one thing to more than one person. Um, and I think the fact that I didn't hate it and it didn't annoy me that many times is a real victory in terms of like appealing to to people who already watched the, the Tour de France. I think also it's important to remember this is like a f the first series and hopefully if it sort of gains traction and they can, they can make it bigger in coming years, we'll sort of be able to really showcase how, how big and grand the race is um, and really deliver something that it deserves. But it also depends on like, I think it also it depends on how the race goes because you can have such a different race every year that this year was maybe quite an easy one to do. But then, like say that say this it was year's one tour of the best is, tours in like in yeah, like exactly. four decades. Yeah. But then I think maybe you'd get a better series yeah. if you had more subplots rather and the main the main GC narrative is n not that great. Maybe you then get a better ser uh, better series because when it's such a good race, you almost feel you would, they Netflix or whoever made it would have felt they had to cover that. I guess. Yeah. What do you think, Gabby? I feel quite conflicted. Because while there were moments that I really liked, there were also moments that I really hated. And I guess I feel a little bit, maybe hated is a strong word. Um, I feel a little bit maybe annoyed that there were so many instances behind the scenes that would have been incredible to see that we maybe didn't get to see because they were focusing on so many different subplots i mean or so many different teams they literally didn't even include one of the teams that they followed around in bora hansgrow um and so in a way i feel like there was so much potential for us to see some really cool stuff behind the scenes from these teams with people following them around all the time with the access that they had to the riders at hand and all of that but I also feel like that's me coming from the perspective of somebody who loves this sport and just kind of wants to know more about it at all times. And there was a lot of there was a lot of this that was not for me and was for a new type of cycling fan. But I also feel in that that the show is discon disconjointed. Dis it 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 doesn't really make sense who it's being made for because it's not being made for the cycling fan because there's not enough of the nitty gritty in it for someone who follows the sport as much as I do to really get a lot out of the show there. And it's way too complicated and way too confusing for a new fan to come in and see this and be like, okay, this is a sport I feel I understand now and I can follow. And it's, like I have a friend who's kind of like a casual viewer of cycling and he said by episode three he was like I, I don't understand what they're what they're trying to accomplish here and so I feel like I loved the final episode I think that that redeemed a lot of the show for me the the even just like the final three minutes but I still don't know how I feel about the show as a whole Kaylee, what do you think? I mean, I enjoyed it. Like, June for me is about getting amped up for the Tour de France that's about to happen. Part of that is because we're about to, you know, go over there and cover it and, and work 15 hours a day for three weeks. <laughs> and you kind of have to get amped up for it. But part of it is just I love cycling and, and I and I want to... I want to love cycling and I want to be entertained by it and I want to dive into these stories and... 
yeah, like I, I did enjoy it. I found I found moments of it moving. I found moments of it uh, insightful. Like you know, we did we did learn a couple things throughout the series, even for those of us so deep inside the sport, like the four of us are. And I think that was that was important that, that it wasn't like entirely stuff that we already knew. And I just found it generally enjoyable. Uh, like I, I I think that the sort of if you take the eight episodes together, there's a there's kind of a nice like acceleration and then slow down and acceleration and then slow down. So you, you kind of brought through those eight episodes quite nicely. I think most of them ended with a decent enough sort of mini cliffhanger that you wanted to keep going. Although I think that that could have been done maybe a little bit better with more kind of chronology in the thing. And I think that one of, one of the real downsides of taking this very character-driven approach and almost ignoring the chronology of the actual Tour de France is like, how do you do a cliffhanger then? Like, how do you, how do you, how do you poke at something that's about to happen? Uh, if you're not even really sure where you are in the tour, <laughs> like that doesn't really work. Uh, but it's just sort of the, it's a, it's a, it's part of the, the nature of the way that they, they put it together again, very, very character driven. So yeah, I, 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 I did enjoy it. Um, I was just pulling up the rotten tomatoes on it just, just to see. Uh, and granted it's early days, right? Uh, but it's getting currently a 93%. On Rotten Tomatoes, which it's, for those, and it's probably all cycling fans so far. Probably, probably, uh, which maybe is why people are giving it a good rating. But also, I think most a lot of the a lot of the discourse we've seen from hardcore cycling fans is is almost like this desire to dislike it, right? In the same way that I think F one fans have this desire to dislike Drive to Survive. So yeah, I mean, like I I an eight out of ten for me. Like I I, I think it it. I found it enjoyable. I watched a lot of it uh, with my wife, who, yeah, like is a cyclist and and is obviously through osmosis picks up a, f- a fair amount from me, but really doesn't follow pro cycling in any way. She's more of a she pr- prefers to participate than than to follow. Um, and she really liked it. You know, there there were points at which, yeah, I, I found it emotional, insightful, and mostly effective. So I, I did I did like it. That the, I mean. I think you probably everyone probably picked up on this from the minor debates that Abby and I were having over the last couple of episodes. Like the dramatization didn't bother me. It doesn't bother me. I think sport is entertainment, and we are fundamentally like there's no inherent value in riding a bicycle fast. So you either entertain people or there is no value. Period. Uh, and I think that as long as you end up in a place that is that is accurate, which like the Wout story, for example, we ended up in a place that felt accurate. Then I don't really have a problem with like essentially creating drama by making people think one thing for half an hour and then correcting the record later that stuff works and i think it's important to to be able to properly tell stories and it's also why i'm getting a bit bit ranty here but it's also why you can't put these things in the hands of teams because they are unwilling to do that they are too close and they may try they may try to pick out the things that they that they think are interesting but unless you are willing to occasionally paint someone as a villain again even for a short amount of time you're just never going to get the kind of the kind of narrative that you need out of these sort of things so yeah eight out of ten that's all that's what i'll that's what i'll give it on a personal basis trying to like canvas the view from newbies who haven't been into cycling or haven't watched any of it and know nothing about it i think the thing that's come across is that it worked as like a like introducing the tour de france as a spectacle and the entertainment was there and they came away from it thinking 
you know, wow, that was, I didn't realize that I would enjoy it that much and I wouldn't enjoy the whole thing. And maybe I will watch it this summer. Like, I'll, like even if they don't watch all of it, it's like, you know, it's baby steps getting into, into something. Um, which if that was the, you know, that's one of the goals of the whole thing, then that's worked. But where, unfortunately, where it then lacks and which is kind of an impossible task is to fully explain the sport and the intricacies because it's not a simple, it's not just a simple like competition. There's so many layers to it, which is, and if you spend time on that, then you detract from everything else. Like no one really wants to sit there being explained like how it all works because that takes ages. Like, you know, you still, you learn things all the time. Um, so yeah but I think like really like sim simple things about like the jerseys or how the timings work or like just facts of like how fast they, they go on various like parts of the course are really easy things that you can drop in and I guess they did sometimes with the descents but I don't know there was just like I feel like sometimes they could have been done a bit better job of like just explaining it through while telling the story what? Seriously, why was Wow dressed all in green? I do, I think they could have explained um, something. I I think it doesn't take forty five minutes to explain what the yellow jersey is, what the green jersey is, even what the polka yeah. dot jersey is. I don't think it takes that long um, to to just give, and you don't have to explain it fully, but you mm -hmm. have to explain why there's somebody wearing a different jersey to everybody else. Um, yeah. and I think that that was. I think I yeah I th I can imagine that that's very confusing. Well, and and like the time cut in the final episode, like until that point, you didn't know that there was a time they had to finish in. But it's just like it's so, it's it's so hard because there are so many things. But I think if it works in terms of people didn't switch off after the first episode, and it's just it's just whether enough people are like enough new fans take the take a chance on it because there are so many of these drive to survive type documentaries coming out that that's that's the big challenge is getting people to and like calling it tour de france unchained with like kind of rubbish font is and like bad design <laughs> isn't necessarily like it doesn't match up to what the race is like the way they've like all the the style of it you know yeah it makes me think more of um because it's it's basically paint on a road, isn't it? So I can see what they're trying to do. They're trying to mimic what you know what you see in mountains, but it makes me think more of cars because it's literally the road, you know. The, the, Use the, a mountain, the, yeah. Yeah, I suppose it doesn't really work. Yeah. I don't know. I think to your point on the on the bits and pieces being littered here and there or not mentioned at all, I think that's one of the letdowns for me. And I did enjoy it. Um, I'm not sure I give it quite an eight, but. Um, it felt it, if I look back on the whole thing as a whole, it feels a bit disjointed, and they threw in things that could have come earlier at a time that was yes, it was convenient for the story. So I don't know what the answer is. I don't have an answer, but it felt like there were elements that contradicted the sh the show itself, like the French storylines that we had at either end of the series. Um, it there was just yeah, it it felt like there was a different director for every episode, which also I don't think is the case. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. Um, but as a whole, I don't know. I I will watch the next season, obviously. And I think they probably will make a next se another season. In fact, I know that they're filming teams already. So, But yeah. I, I hope it continues and I hope it does become somewhat of an institution like Drive to Survive because I think it's a really great accompaniment to the race and to the sort of culture of it and to bring new people in and to remind like, cycling and cycling fans that there is a, like a world outside of there and to maybe like let let the sport be seen through that lens 
even through like filmmakers who don't follow cycling is still a great lens to sort of view the sport through and it's good news for Jonathan Borters because it means he can get more sponsors that's true unless they don't win any races this year otherwise they will all disappear <laughs> into a, like a puff of smoke <laughs> so I think in general it sounds like we're in general we are relatively happy with it right like yeah definitely we have our we have our nitpicks but we we are we are generally happy with it and i i i do think it was it is good it is a it is a good and entertaining watch and i've seen i've seen like a couple takes on on twitter from cycling people who have come out and said that it's like boring and i i struggle with that one like if you know anything about cycling and you care about the tour de france i i struggle to see how it is boring it has slow moments for sure but as a series it is not boring the only people i could see finding it boring is if you truly know absolutely nothing about the tour and you just get lost right like then i could see it potentially be boring but we think it's good what what did they miss though like what from a from a strategic perspective when they're first putting this thing together what did they do wrong what would you have done differently i have a big one make it 50% 50% less French. Yeah, that is, yeah, that that's a big question that would be great to to get asked because you should, but maybe this is just like our view as the English speaking cycling world and that we, we assumed it'd be for all the people that don't watch it in the UK and America and and wherever, but we, I, that's how you assumed it would be, maybe because that's how Drive to Survive was positioned to like convert like America into liking Formula One. Um, but yeah, the, and you could still cover all the French teams, but you like you just don't make it so. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's small things. Like I, I think the average American viewer can can very much get behind Thibaut Pinot and David Gaudu. Like I think that 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 part's totally fine. Groupama, great. Mark Matteo, fantastic character, superb. I think actually, well, this I don't think this. France has about sixty-five million people living in it, and the U.S. has somewhere in the neighborhood of like three hundred and fifty million people living in it. Just from a pure strategic perspective, you've got a much larger market that really only thinks the Tour de France is Lance Armstrong, and an opportunity to speak to them in a way that you have not had previously. And it feels very myopic to me. We have heard that there were requests from ASO, the tour organizer, to kind of make this more French and to make it feel very French and to direct it toward French people. And I understand where they're coming from. Like a lot of their revenue still comes from you know you don't see american sponsors in the in the in the daily caravan right like it's it's cofidis and things like that that are in that caravan they get a lot of their money from from france still so i I understand that but i think that angling it a little bit more in the drive to survive way toward the anglophone world would have made a lot of sense because effectively like if i'm doing the the market research on this like that's where the opportunity is French people know what the Tour de France is and have the opportunity to watch it every single day on essentially public television, right? And if they haven't been sort of pulled in already, they're probably difficult to do so. Whereas you've got this whole big group of people that have never interacted with before. And and that to me is where the opportunity lies. And you could have done some really simple things. Like I said, leave leave Matteo in there, leave Groupame in there, replace Steve Chanel with someone who's speaking English and is explaining these very key core basic things that you need to understand to understand the Tour de France without having to read subtitles, right? Like that would have been a very small thing 
to just make it more approachable for, I mean, like English is the world's language at this point. We can say that sitting here from our English speaking countries, but it's also just reality. And I don't really understand why uh, you wouldn't tilt it a bit, like just 10 or 15% more in that direction. Maybe a good like workaround and maybe and something I think they were missing was more of the culture around the tour and the eccentricities of it. Like, go into like the weird French towns where there's like a big band and like give them a bit of B-roll or like like a someone like Didi the Devil. Like, just include a shot of him on the side of the road jumping up and down, or just all those 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 things and like and like all the camper vans camped out on the tour. And like more on like Dutch Corner or something like that, just like those those special little things that you just have to sprinkle over the entire series that show off France and what makes the the Tour de France weird and French, and is like kind of the selling point. Yeah. Um, and just make it that bit more like offbeat, which it kind of is, and is part of the attraction as well as you know look at these amazing athletes. It's the amazing athletes plus the the weird bits. Yeah, I should say that when I first heard it was going to be very French, I actually thought that that would be okay. Because I think that generally, I think generally Americans are, are kind of pro-French because it feels very sort of foreign and high class. Mm. And we have these sort of, we have associations with French language being a very beautiful language, French food being delicious food, like all these. If you say France to any American viewer, they're going to have pretty positive uh, connotations with, with, with French generally uh and so i like i initially i was like i think it'll be fine i think it'll be good maybe like it'll feel it'll make you Mm. feel fancy like you're watching a foreign film or something like that and and maybe that'll be effective for the american audience but after having watched it again it was these really small decisions and in particular the decisions around basic information that you need to understand the tour being done in a language other than english and and the steve chanel character for me like he does a great job at what he is supposed to be doing, right? He, he explains things very succinctly. He, he sells it well. It could have been one of the English speakers. And for me, like those bits, you know, they, they gave Orla the more complicated bits. They gave David Miller the, the more complicated bits. But these sort of like basic tenets of how this bike race works were mostly in the Steve Chanel camp. And that felt like a, like a miss to me. I feel like I I don't know if I agree with you, Kaylee, but I do think that they could have benefited from maybe just trimming it a little bit. Like, I don't know why we needed AG2R. Obviously, they're a big French team, so the ASO and the Tour de France would have wanted them to be part of it. But I think maybe having less teams is the focus and then bringing teams in in the future for future seasons maybe would have been a better way to have a wider um cast of characters but for the first season it felt like it was really busy i have a question do you think it should have been less sporty because there's a reason people watch the tour de france instead of all the other bike races and it's about the culture and about the history and the mountains and everything, and that's the whole package that sells the tour and makes it so big. So should it have been less, this is my athletic uh, struggle and my dreams and goals in a very sporting context rather than... So Johnny wants it to be more French? <laughs> well, just in a different way. I don't know, like like, make, like having a really sporting documentary isn't... like Those people don't watch the Tour de France because they're invested in 
these teams or these riders like they watch it as like a a capsule of a thing in the summer when there isn't loads of other sport on and i think that's how you get more fans and then it's the trickle down from those fans who then go further into the sport i don't know yeah so i think one of the issues with the um with the tour de france maybe as a context for this is that it's grappling with its own history all the time and when you've got the storyline of the was it episode three with the French teams? I think that was important context, but it didn't really move the show along. Um, and the story that the, the main crux of that story didn't happen until the Gadu storyline in last in the penultimate episode, um, in a way um, you could say. But it did do an important work in explaining what Johnny you were just saying about the romance of the tour, the romance of these older cyclists and the Frenchness of, obviously, the Tour de France. Um, that was also my least favourite episode in some ways, but it was also the best structured episode. Um, so it almost seemed like they, you know, there was there is a world in which we would have had more of that, but unfortunately, because Pino couldn't win a stage and Gudu didn't get on the podium, maybe, um, and Ben O'Connor, sadly, um, had to leave the race. Um, I suppose it's just one of those um, unfortunate circumstances where that storyline wasn't able, wasn't allowed by the circumstances that happened in the race to continue. But then again, if I had, and we'd had more of the um, romance of those um, threads, it would have been far too congested at the tail end as it already was, really. I feel like the you, the first five minutes of the entire series, you have like one of those like Vox YouTube video type things on like, here is the Tour de France. Like, this is how it works. This is all how it works. Just like, quick edits quick cuts quick you know fast paced and some of the history like old timey wimey footage of someone like with bottles of like drinking bottles of beer or like bottles strapped to them and all that sort of stuff and you like you then really set why it matters and what it's about and how it works i don't know i think that's just like such a small amount of time you'd have to sacrifice that then vastly improve everyone's understanding throughout the rest of the show yeah i feel like with that um it's it would have been really hard to pull in like a casual viewer because like I was saying earlier mm. about how in the last episode about how this sport favors the nerds like we are not cool <laughs> as for no. sitting here hey now like we're really not now? cool kids yeah yeah like we we are very much nerds and I feel like my daughter too- thinks I'm super cool <laughs> that would change give it time Kaylee give it time um and I think that for to pull in fans is a really hard job uh I don't know how that would even be possible especially once you start diving into the intricacies of the sport because it is such a numbers-based sport it's like such a nerdy sport I mean, they're dudes riding around in Lycra, for God's sake. Like, this is, it's not F1. It's not fast cars. It's not, you know, models and celebrities at every single start. Although Ben Stiller is apparently a huge fan of cycling. But but it's, it's yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like trying to convert people into being a fan of cycling by making a Netflix show is like a losing battle. Like, you're basically just burning, setting money on fire. We've benefited because we got to talk about it for eight hours. But like, I mean, one piece of feedback I got was that the the Tour de France cyclists were were way more attractive than 
they'd thought. Oh. Which I don't know if that face. speaks to if that speaks to how little they expected. They're like putting Tebow Pino front and center is not going to harm your ratings, is it? Roglic, Roglic is adorable. Yeah, well, Waffenart's a good-looking guy. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. It, except when they take the all their clothes off, like Gadu sitting there, Gollum-like in his boxes, um, yeah. with his, <laughs> and they are incredibly skinny. I mean, it's, yeah, it's nuts. just really does throw. It. And yeah. the camera adds ten pounds. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I think so. I think one of the things that is that I appreciated about this show, this has just sort of occurred to me, is that one of, one of the things I think was most effective is a lot of sports coverage in general is is very um, sort of for want for want of a better term like partisan, right? Like you, you follow it from the perspective of a team or you or the perspective of even of a rider, and the only thing that kind of matters is like the tension between this rider and that rider or this athlete that 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 athlete this team and that team how much they hate each other like that's the, that is the the framing of almost all sports coverage and i think that every once in a while and i i have this sort of realization at the tour de france whenever we go out on course and you see them go by every once in a while you kind of step back and you just i think it's important to appreciate the absolutely insane thing that the human being in front of you is doing like at a ball sport you watch them do things you, you go to a basketball game you you watch nba players do things that like shouldn't really be possible for a human being to do and same thing when you're on the side of the road at the tour de france or i think captured relatively accurately in some of these episodes this stuff it shouldn't be possible. The speeds that they go uphill and downhill, the, the the corners that they that they manage to get themselves around, some of the in peloton footage, like the on bike footage, I think was incredibly effective at basically defining this sport as something that is like on its face, objectively, kind of a crazy thing to go do, and that these athletes do it incredibly, incredibly well, and just that sort of that sense of awe this series was better at creating that sense of awe in the athletes themselves than anything that I have watched anytime recently. Like normal sort of TV Tour de France coverage pretty much never gets that across. The other documentaries that you that have popped up on, on occasion, I think have rarely gotten that across. But the access that they had, the camera angles that they had, there were a couple moments in, in this show, like Pitcock's Descending is one, the way they cut that together. Uh, Again, just like some of the random clips from inside the peloton, I think they could have used better ones. They often like they'll cut to ins- it'll look it'll look chaotic from the helicopter, and they'll cut to inside the peloton. It's just like a bunch of dudes running around in the hoods. And you're like, I know that's not from the same ta- time, and you could have picked a better shot. So they they did they did miss a couple there, but still, I, I think that fundamentally, it's important to step back and appreciate kind of like the athleticism that's happening in front of you. And I do think that the show was in general pretty good at appreciating that do you do you agree in in moments i should say i think that was maybe one of my favorite parts of the show was the the on bike cameras there was one shot where we saw pino crash um where he literally just rode into the camera that was on the bike in front of him that was pretty incredible um there was yeah there was multiple onboard shots that like I was watching it and I was like, I don't know how that is physically possible. And yet, (laughs) 
Um, and yet everyone stays upright. Yeah. yeah. And so that was pretty cool. Like even having been in a Peloton and having raced my bike uh, relatively fast, it still is a shock to me that they go as fast as they do. Um, so I think that that was, that was maybe one of my favorite things. And I, and I think it's really cool that they have that much access, like also, you know, getting to hear the directors in real time on the radios in the cars was pretty cool. Um, they're actually going to do that in the tour this year. They did it in the women's tour de France of X Swift last year, uh, tour de France femme of X Swift in 2022. Uh, they had moments in the cars where you could hear what the directors were saying, which was pretty wild. Um, and they're going to do that again in the 2023 tour de France men's tour de France. Um, albeit with some restrictions on what they're allowed to show on TV, but it is super cool to hear what that is saying, what they're saying in the cars. And I feel like as a long time advocate for radios, <laughs> I'm really happy that we're going to be able to, to hear from inside the cars. I'm going to wrap up here. I, I think we, we, we've got almost an hour and a half of chatting about, about this um, over the course of eight hours. I hope everybody out there enjoyed it as much as we did. We really, I, I think we all were pretty excited about making this and, and uh, stepping outside of our, our sort of norm, and it was really fun. So last thing, last thing. What was your most effective scene? or most emotional scene or kind of however you want to define effective. What was the, what was sort of the best moment of the whole show for you? Weirdly, I think it was I don't I think there's going to be a dumb answer, but the first time I saw the pigcock shots, especially when it was on the trailer that was like cut into a social clip and there wasn't any music and it was just the like the whooshing of him going past. I think that was a rather succinct way to sum up every like it was, yeah, I don't know. I think that was an amazing. I don't. I never want to say a moment that transcended cycling or sport, but I think that's a thing that you can see, that you can just visually like just look at in like a ten second clip and be like, wow, that's that's worth me paying a bit of attention to. I think the the moment that made me feel most, if I can use that <laughs> cheesy term, um, was the Jakobsen crawling across the line bit. But I think the moment when I really invested in the show most and thought, oh, okay, I see what you're doing, I see what the value is here, was on the um, stage 11, Granon stage, it was episode four, um, when we got the insight into how the Jumbo Visma tactics had played out and Roglic going, guys, when are we going to go? And it was that um, that we hadn't got at the time and uh, just the sort of... I don't know the the whole dynamic that we that we were shown that but yeah it was all so fresh and um and uh yeah it it really made the series feel like it was doing something and saying something that we hadn't seen before. Abby I think it was for me it was the bookended moments of Eve Lampart winning the first stage and crying uh in the chair I think that that and then the the show wrapping up with Jonas being incredibly emotional, uh, talking about how he'd done it for his girlfriend and his daughter. I think those two moments on either end of the show, like, I mean, I cried in every single episode. Um, there was a moment that brought me to tears in almost every episode. Um, but I think those two 
were the most compelling for me. And, and like, I remember watching those videos, those interviews in real time when they were happening and tearing up and seeing them again set with music <laughs> and like a little bit of context was even more powerful. What about you, Katie? I'm trying to decide. I, I like, I really liked Garrett Thomas in this. Like, I think he was very relatable. I think, and, and I, 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 I liked sort of the sort of the narrative around, uh, like the end of his career. Like, I think that that's a, having watched a lot of athletes kind of go through that process. And maybe this is a, a function of kind of where I am in, in my life and my career, but like the guys that were young when I first started doing this job in like 2010, 2011 are now retiring or close to it. Right. And I have, I have stuck with the same group of, of athletes through their entire careers. Uh, and I'm watching them sort of like drop out, right? Like drop out of, out of the, out of the world tour one by one. Uh, Peter Sagan and, you know, Pino uh, out at the end of this year and Garrett Thomas kind of fighting back time. And, and I found that particularly effective, maybe because of that, maybe because I've, I've, I've connected with these riders and I've kind of watched them go through all this stuff. I've been at a lot of their Tour de France's and, and I'm now watching Garrett Thomas. Yeah. Fight back time. Uh, little things like, like, like the, the, the text message that may or may not have actually come in at that moment. Uh, that reminded him that he was in high school when Pogacar and Vigago were born. Uh, things like that, that really humanized him. And I just found him to be a very relatable, a very relatable character. So there's not really a moment so, so much as, as just that as a, as a narrative um, and, and a bit of a story. So that was probably the, yeah, the most effective for me. Um, if I had to pick like an, an actual sort of small moment, it's probably the Eve Lampart, I'm just the son of a farmer, uh, all the way back at the beginning of the show. And I think that, like, that's one that you almost just heard, and it took you a second to clock it, and it happened so fast, and it kind of just hit you in the gut, because uh, you could just see what it meant. And I think it was a really important small moment to have really early in the show to show what the Tour de France means to all the characters that you're about to be introduced to. So I think it was very effective from that perspective. And it also just hit me really, really hard. Right? Like, I think sports stories like that are, are I mean, that, that's, that's one of the things that makes sports amazing, right? So yeah, those are my two. Yay, sports. Go sports. <laughs> Quick shout out to uh, the man who has edited all eight. Actually, that's not true. I did one of them. Uh, seven of the eight <laughs> of these episodes. Massive, massive pull from uh, our sort of podcast producer slash editor slash all around uh, organizer guy at the moment. Uh, Dane Cash. Thank you, Dane. I know you're listening to this right now. Editing it. Pulling out all the big gaps in between words and ums and things like that. Uh, you've done a fantastic job making us sound more intelligent than we actually are. And thank you for putting in just, just hours and hours and hours and hours of editing these things. Uh, yeah, thanks to, to all three of you. Abby, thank you. Johnny, thank you. Kit, thank you. Ian, he's not here right now, but thanks to Ian as well. If you enjoyed these podcasts, well, 
we'll be back with them again in a year from now. Also, you can catch all of our tour daily podcasts throughout the entire month of July. Johnny and I are headed over for the Tour de France. Abby, you're headed over for the Tour de France Femme of Exwift. And we'll be recording every single day from the ground in France. Can't wait to do those. Make sure you are subscribed to the Escape Collective podcast channel to make sure you get those. Anything to add, crew? Oh, thanks for listening. If you stuck with us through all eight episodes, including this extra extra long one at the end, to really test your endurance. Yeah, see you in a year, I guess. Your own, everyone's personal tour de France, getting through all eight unchained episodes. All right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, we'll see you over on the Escape Collective channel for Tour de France dailies. Bye-bye. Kaylee Fretz from Escape Collective here. If you've landed on this podcast because you just watched Unchained on Netflix and you want to dive headfirst into the Tour de France and pro bike racing, I have some great news for you. The crew behind this podcast cover pro cycling in depth 365 days a year over at escapecollective.com. We're member funded, meaning listeners and readers support what we do. So if you love this pod, head over to escapecollective.com slash join to sign up. You get all kinds of extra stuff. You get past the paywall. You get the best bike content anywhere. Thanks.